And for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, listening for the first time, or you're here for the first time, we preach and teach expositionally here at Flat Creek. It's been my privilege to be the pastor here for about 28 years, now a little, a little longer than 28 years, I think, 27, 28 years. And uh, many, many years ago, we started uh, in uh, preaching through 1 John and then 1 Corinthians. And any event, we've had an opportunity to preach through a number of the uh, passages in the Word of God. Most all of our Sunday school classes focus on teaching expositionally. And so we have been in 1 Peter, uh, not consistently, but this is the 47th message since we started, I think, in February or so of last year. So we've had some different, uh, obviously different uh, approaches, but uh, uh, just a reminder of that, that it, the, it's not a, it, it's a way to preach, taking a word, the word and going verse by verse expositionally. I personally think it's the best way to preach. There are other good ways, but this forces us into passages of Scripture that we would ignore and that we're in one of those this morning. In fact, chapter 3 is probably the most difficult chapter in all of Peter's epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter. And uh, I will say this at the outset. I want to read down through uh, verse 12 this morning. I'll say this at the outset. We're going to focus on the first seven verses. Uh, it's not my intention to, to dive into the scriptures this morning in any specific detail. We'll start doing that next Sunday morning. But these first seven verses focus on, this is not a focus on a Christian marriage, a saved husband, saved wife. This is a focus on unsaved husband, saved wife, unsaved wife, saved husband. So keep that in mind. And one of the ways that we know that is the context of the Scripture. Next Sunday, we'll start to look at the, the, their four backgrounds to these first seven verses, and we'll look at those, but just keep in mind the context. We are very guilty of, and it's a sin, to lift the Scripture out of context, to make it say what we want, want it to say or what we assume it says. So it's important to remember that context is King. These first seven verses, Peter says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct, conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a quiet and uh, gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, 
Now Peter changes, saved and saved. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, deal with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of God, that your prayers be not hindered, or may not be hindered. May God bless the reading. Well, let's, let's continue through verse 12. Husbands, wives, the church. Verse 8. The church is to be submissive too. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's a quote primarily from Psalm 37. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for these blessed children. We thank you for those that have uh, given of their time over these past few weeks to prepare this for us, and indeed, we are united because of Jesus Christ. Reveal him to us this morning as we cover the preface to this beautiful passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, if you would, brother. So this is where we are, and this is basically what we have covered to date. So we've been looking at, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2 through verse 7 here of uh, chapter 3, holding to authority. And here this morning we're going to look at, uh, or begin to look at, a submitting family because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've covered the hope of the gospel in chapter 1. We've covered the holiness in the gospel also in chapter 1. Beginning in chapter 2, we've covered honoring the cornerstone down through verse 12. And then we've been in this fairly lengthy passage here in chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 7 here of uh, chapter 3, holding to authority. We learn to submit to the government for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned to submit to suffering as the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. In fact, we closed that out last Sunday morning. And now we're going to look at submitting in the family for the Lord Jesus in verses 8 through 12, suffering together as a church and also submitting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while everything this morning is grounded in the Bible and it's biblical in its framework, I'm, as I said, going to begin exposition next week. This passage speaks about relationships and particularly the most important relationship we have here on earth between male and female. Some of you this morning inevitably in God's plan will meet someone if you've not already done so that will lead to marriage. And so Peter here is writing giving instruction by the Holy Spirit to husbands and wives as I mentioned, 
that are unequally yoked, which, first of all, is a sin, but in the wisdom of God, he had Peter record this for us, how to live with those that are husbands and wives that are unsaved. So, Peter begins with the phrase, wives likewise. So look back, if you would, at chapter 2 and verse 13. Therefore, and he uses the word likewise in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he could use the word therefore, he is hearkening the wives back to submission. That's the passage. That is the context. Again, context is key. And so the main focus of this context, beginning in chapter and verse 13, rather, of chapter 2, carrying through uh, verse 12 here of chapter 3, is on submission. We're to submit to the government. We're to submit to employers. We're to submit, obviously, to Jesus because he suffered for us, and now we're to submit in the family. And he closes out this passage with us submitting to the church. Next slide, if you would. Just a few weeks ago, Tim Keller, who was founder and pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, passed away. In review of this passage, this is what he wrote. The basic principle, then, is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We're not to live as if we belong to ourselves. It means, first of all, that we are not to determine for ourselves what is right or wrong. We give up the right to determine that, and we rely wholly on God's Word. We also give up the operating principle that we usually use in day-to-day life. We stop putting ourselves first. And we always put first what pleases God and what loves our neighbor. It also means that we have no part of our lives that is immune from self-giving. We're supposed to give ourselves wholly to him, body and soul. And it means that we trust God through thick and thin, through the good and the bad times in life and death. When we became believers, this is what we signed up for. Scriptures today are easily diluted and sometimes just totally disregarded. They're immaterial. They're out of step with the times. And this, I've heard this said a number of times about this passage. Again, misunderstanding the context. Nowhere is this more telling than the Bible's teaching on the nature of marriage. From the beginning... Our Lord, in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, said that God made them male and female. He hearkened all the way back to the creation, and being the creator, he can do that. The Bible begins and it ends with a marriage ceremony. The first one in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And at the very last, in the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem will be united to its Savior. The New Jerusalem, or rather the church, when the church is united forever, the gift that God gives to the church is the New Jerusalem. 
Those are the descriptions of heaven that we often long for, sing about, or teach about. But it really is God's special gift to his church, to his people, to his family. And not everyone is in the family of God. It is not good, the Lord said, when he made Eve for Adam. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Next slide. You know, we sometimes differ regarding peripheral matters of biblical marriage. In other words, how we are to prepare for marriage and how we are to behave in marriage and so forth. We uh, have had opportunity to, to celebrate a number of marriages here at Flat Creek, and these children that you've seen here this morning are a result of many of those marriages that have been performed in. We sometimes differ on whether or not uh, the uh, Bible teaches that marriage is a sacrament, and we sometimes differ on the grounds uh, for divorce and remarriage. But the significant thing is that believers should understand that marriage is intended to display the beauty of the love of the Trinity and also to display the beauty of the wonder of the gospel. I think sometimes we forget that. On Mother's Day, we read these verses and I preached about one of the things that I talked about in that particular message was the epidemic of loneliness in America. We're going to see why here in just a minute as we go through some of these slides. Now remember this about the Bible. The Bible's central theme is the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about me, it's not about you. The person of Jesus Christ. However, the Bible is a long narrative about families, beginning in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis all the way through to the end of the book of the, of the Revelation. It is, tells us about marriages that are functional, and it tells us about marriages that are dysfunctional. It tells us about marriages that are comprised of born-again people and unsaved people. It tells us about rich people that are married and poor people that are married and middle class people that are married. It tells us about individuals in marriages that are healthy and individuals in marriages that are ill. And we could go on and on. Most of the marriages in the Bible teach us that they have children. Some are childless. Some remain childless. Some, the Lord removes that because of his grace. And we've been witness to that here. But as we look at the overall aspect, this is, by the way, is called the biblical theology of marriage from Genesis through Revelation. The Trinity wants his creation to reflect the eternal love between the three in one. That's his desire. Adam and Eve were not created to be an entity unto themselves, and neither were you and I. We are 
people of relationships. And we are to fight the epidemic of loneliness in this country and perhaps in some of you that we're speaking to this morning. We are bombarded today with openness about marriage. We need more variety. We need an inclusiveness. We need more about love wins. But you see, this is only a reflection of the sinner's mind. Sinners are always in search of a new morality. They're always in search of a new righteousness, one that differs from God's. And they do this because they are willfully ignorant of God's morality and righteousness. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 1. Now, folks, this is not new. In fact, what we're going to see is that, as um, let's see, Oz Guinness wrote a book a number of years ago entitled Slouching Toward Gomorrah. So this goes all the way back to Genesis. It's not new. It's very similar to the attitude about marriage that's found in the Old Testament. Polygamy. David had eight wives. Solomon had hundreds of wives. You can find this in many places in the Old Jacob. All of these individuals. Adultery. Rampant in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. Not affairs, adultery. Multiple sex pardons with harlots and wives and a laxity about divorce. That's what we see when we read about a lot of the families in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, we've already alluded to this, but I'm going to quote, quote it, uh, the long version here. Jesus' focuses on, uh, focus on marriage was so strict. Well, what does God think about marriage? Well, Jesus himself. Jesus is the God-man. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 19. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. You see, God does not cut anyone any slack. He doesn't give any quarter. Because of the hardness of your hearts, he permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from creation, it was not so, he said. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And then the disciples say to him, hey, if such is the case of man with his wife, it's just better not to marry. 
Now, the Lord does forgive. But his ideal marriage is one born-again man and born-again woman for a lifetime. This is not a message on divorce, but the Lord was very clear. Now, his words are sharper than a two-edged sword, especially today. They surprise us. They surprised his disciples, written 2,000 years ago. And they anger people. Well, of course they anger people because they're looking for a new morality and a new righteousness. His words teach us that because he's God, because he's creator, it speaks to us, it convicts us, especially when the idol of sexual desire is placed at the core of who we are. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Obviously, it's what the contemporary world teaches, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Next slide, if you would. The world that we live in has decided, and he wants to drag you along with it. We'll talk about that as we close this morning. The world has decided to expand and improve marriage. And they base it on an arbitrary and restrictive paradigm from the past. This isn't new, as I said. The Old Testament is replete with precisely what you see today. What you and I as believers, what Christians are to celebrate... And we are to celebrate marriage as glorious and intended for the well-being of the Imago Dei, created in the image of God. I'm speaking to all of you this morning, created in the image of God. Every sinner that has ever lived, created in the image of God. And what we do in sin is deface the image of God. And nowhere is this more prevalent than in marriage. Today we have devolved, not evolved, we have devolved into a state-approved romantic relationship between consenting adults. Well, it's consenting adults, preacher. Don't you understand? Well, we'll talk about that too. Consenting adults doesn't mean that it's right. While severing the intrinsic connection between marriage and children. Now the Bible defines marriage as a covenant between two halves of humanity created because of the goodness of God. It is the only relationship that results in procreation. A man and a woman. Only one. 
today, because we want to improve marriage, those between consenting adults, those that have sterile unions, require surrogates for generating children. The creature has become the creator. And so we see that pre progressive attitudes about marriage have drifted backwards. And that's what happens when we remain in sin. We never go forward. Now, it may seem that, but we never go forward. We always drift backwards. Now, I'm going to read a long quote here from The Economist magazine. And we'll do this because it harkens back to children. We enjoyed the children, their play this morning, their presentation. And I want to say this as before we start through this quote. None of us here would be here if it were not for a mom and a dad. And even surrogates require male and female. And the economist is, uh, is it's a, in some cases, a very well-written uh, magazine. It's put out by the London School of Economics, which is probably the premier economic school for advanced learning in the world. But you will see as we go through here they begin this article talking about uh, the slump in the birth rate, but they close it out by saying, well, who really cares, which is sad. I quote, in the roughly 250 years since the Industrial Revolution, the world's population, like its wealth, now there's so many poor people on the world, in the world. Yes, there are poor people in the world, but the world world's conditions in the past 200 years have exponentially improved. The world's population, like its wealth, has exploded. Before the end of this century, however, the number of people on the planet could shrink for the first time since the Black Death, the bubonic plague, in the 13 and 1400s. The root cause is not a surge in deaths, but a slump in births. This was written the first part of June. So this is post-COVID. Across much of the world, the fertility rate is collapsing. Although the trend may be familiar, its extent and its consequences are not. The baby bust hangs over the future of the world economy. In 2000, the world's fertility rate was 2.7 births per, per woman. On average, almost three children born to a woman in the year 2000. The replacement rate, in other words, the births that are needed to maintain the population is 2.1, at which the population is stable. Next slide. Now, this is the economist, so they're going to give you some economy. Talk about economy. Today, 2023, is 2.3 and falling. So that's a drop of about 
25% or so. The largest 15 countries by gross domestic product have a fertility rate below the replacement rate, which includes America. Now, I'm part of the baby boomer generation, which is the largest generation ever in this country. The subsequent generations, generation X, gener the millennials, generation Z, X, Y, and Z, whatever they may be, the population is less than us good old baby boomers. And so I would just say to the generation X, Y, Zs, and millennials, whatever you may be, keep working because my Social Security depends on it. But that's a problem for you. For a long time, the declining rate Declining total uh, fertility rate has a lot to do with the attainment of increased education by women, the delay of marriage, especially when it comes to women, and the entry into the workforce of women, what we would refer to as equality. Now, go back to the top just for a moment. We talked about America and the rest of the rich world where the fertility rate is declining, but also China and India, neither of which are rich. India now is the most populous nation on earth. In fact, China and India do account for more than one-third of the global population. All things considered, they go on to say, it is tempting to cast the low fertility rates as a crisis to be solved. Many of its underlying causes, though, are in themselves welcome. We're glad to see them. And notice what they say. As people have become richer, they've tended to have fewer children. This was not the case 150 years ago, but it is today. Today, they face different trade-offs between work and family. And those are mostly, quote, the economist says, better ones. The populist conservative who claim low fertility is a sign of society's failure and call for return to traditional family values are wrong. Emphasis. More choice is a good thing. And no one owes it to others to bring up children. I want the new morality. I want the new righteousness. And I want it to be mine. It speaks to the three great idols of our time. Self's always number one. It's been the greatest idol all the way back to Eden. Two, abortion. Sixty million unborn children in this country aborted. Estimated in China, it, it exceeds a billion. and the LGBT plus whatever group. Three great idols. 
of today. The redefining of marriage. We want to make it better, remember, for the me first and the fear of missing out generations. FOMO. If I have kids, I'm going to miss out. How sad. Next slide. Al Mohler this week wrote about this particular passage of Scripture, or a passage that we just read. He said, no thoughtful person should consider that those things would not come with consequences. Think. They are a radical reduction in the number of babies born and a radical reduction in the number of babies women say that they want to have. One of the deadliest aspects of our current cultural situation is that people think of both marriage and of children as something like hobbies. It's just been translated into a lifestyle choice. And people are into that. And they will redefine it so that the conjugal union of man and woman are no longer even necessary. We lie to ourselves and say, no man can be married to a woman or a woman be married to or a man can be married to a man or a woman be married to a woman, even when, quite frankly, the biology argues against the opposite. We'll speak about same-sex couples having children more or less like their consumer products and hobbies. All the while knowing we're speaking a lie. Christians, as I'm speaking to most of you this morning, majority of whom are Christians, we don't have the ability to influence or to persuade the entire world to live in accordance with a biblical worldview. We can preach and teach, we can advise, we can offer what the scripture says, but only the spirit of God changes people's hearts. Only God's word changes. But Christians have to understand that we are not on this world living lives by our own designation. or even our own choice. We're creatures who've been commanded by the Creator. What's the command? Be fruitful and fill the earth. Well, I'm worried about overpopulation, worried about climate changes. Then you're assuming that God is not sovereign. Again, the creature becomes a Creator. Next slide. You and I should also understand that when a baby enters into the experience of a couple, that baby fundamentally changes the entire reality. 
most young fathers and mothers will tell you that, that they have grown up to be adults more simply by being a new father and a new mother than by any other experience. And I would agree with that. When you don't have children, you tend to be extremely selfish because the main idol is self. And if you want to understand that theology matters, the command in Genesis is, is theological. It's of God. If you want to understand that theology matters, look, for example, at the distinction between the number of children born to those who identify with Jewish orthodoxy and those who identify with more liberal varieties of Judaism. And Orthodox Judaism is going to win simply because the other branches of Judaism have, decide, have, have decided to go sterile. This, when you look in the Christian circles, you'll find that there are more conservative, the more conservative churches have larger nurseries. A larger percentage of babies and a more open celebration of families raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Thankfully, the Lord has blessed us. These children, just a moment, we'll look at our growing children, the youth. And then again, a privilege where these that were born here and dedicated here have grown and now have married. And are going to marry. That is a good thing. Well, I've got to go to the nursery this morning. God forgive us. Dead churches have increasingly empty nurseries. And dead societies have increasingly empty classrooms and playgrounds. Now, we live in a very unique area. You don't see a lot of that here, but it is here. Here's a summary of this. Christians ought to have children if, if you have that ability. God's blessed you with it. They ought to have children. Celebrating every single child, encouraging one another to have children, to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is not a responsibility uh, in contrast to the world that we carry with great greatness, but rather with unspeakable joy. We've been studying the book of Philippians in our Sunday school class, and Gordon was speaking this morning about that beautiful passage in Philippians 4 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. This is one of the reasons to rejoice. I come from a family of three boys and my sister, who was the last one born. I'm almost 13 years older than my sister. In fact, my youngest brother is seven or eight years older. He's eight years older than she is. And my poor mother, Bethany 
and Josh have three boys. My poor mother. No wonder she put us outside the house and locked the door and said, y'all go into the woods. Well, Mom, there's snakes in the woods. You'll be okay. Go. After Paul, my youngest brother came along, I could say seven or eight years, and then sort of a miracle child. Robin was born, my sister. What a great family. Robin comes from a family of three girls and then a boy. They have children. They are an heritage of the Lord, the psalmist said. Believers must oppose this redefining for nothing else that it vilifies the Trinity. Trinity is the maker of heaven and earth. The church must be unmovable. God's unchanging. The church must be unmovable. In our resolve to promote the goodness of biblical marriage in line with, number one, the created order. That's what we see here, 1 Peter 3, the created order and the common good. Now, something we must understand about progressive thought. Progressive thought will win for now. Because many believers will sell out to the myth of influence. They seem to think that if we compromise a little here and there, we can appeal to the broader base and we can gain more sinners into God's flock. There's another word for that. You've heard me say it hundreds of times, pragmatism. The Bible is not based on pragmatism. Jesus, not based on pragmatism. If he had been, he would not have said what he said in Matthew 19. Let the word of the Lord stand. Let it be sure. It is true. It impacts your life and my life. Don't be persuaded by the myth of influence. Be a child of God. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. Next slide. Now, progressive thought will demand. They're not giving us the realm of tolerance. They're going to demand, already have, demand that we comply. And if we don't, we're regarded as unkind, unloving, immoral, and xenophobes, those that are afraid of other races other cultures. <clears throat> it's strikingly similar to what we see here in 1 Peter chapter 3. In fact, what Peter's been writing about since chapter 1. 
verses 1 through 7, as I mentioned at the outset this morning, are not a discourse on male and female status or a discourse on Christian marriage. The first four verses basically discuss mixed marriages, saved, unsaved, a Christian and a non-Christian partner. Verses 5 through 7 teach us about holy women and men. So that's the demarcation here. Now I want to close with a couple of these things here. They are patently different from the Epicurean lifestyle ended by our culture. Remember at the beginning I said this is very much like the Old Testament. Well, Epicurus was a Greek philosopher around 300 or so B.C., In fact, Paul entertained and preached to the Epicureans in Acts chapter 17. Well, the Epicureans believed, and he taught, that lasting marriages were doubtful. God didn't make us, or the gods, he was not monotheistic. The gods didn't make us to be um, monogamous. And, quote, A life free of mental anxiety and open to the enjoyment of other pleasures was equal to that of the gods. In other words, pour yourself out on yourself. The ultimate life was to experience pleasures completely free of mental distress and with no disturbing bodily pain. And they, along with many others, the Egyptians included, would use... uh, types of medicines and herbs that would cause them to hallucinate. This is not new. To remove them from life's reality. Laura Santos, who is a professor of psychology at Yale University, and she teaches apparently the most popular course at Yale. It's entitled Psychology and the Good Life. And she told the New York Times, and the New York Times is certainly not a conservative paper, but she told the New York Times, our uh, intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery or getting a good grade, are totally wrong. One of those common but wrong Intuitions is that happiness depends more on financial independence and career success than marriage and family. I'm surprised that the New York Times even printed that. Remember, the economist said, you're not obligated to have children to make me feel better. And while to a certain extent that is true, that also indicates that the only thing that we are concerned about is material in a materialistic culture. Now, you and I, as believers, are to push back on these cultural intuitions and all of this message about the good life. Tony Bennett um, Frank Sinatra many others recorded a song titled The Good Life. Oh the good life. 
We're to push back on them because Jesus offers deeper happiness than Epicurus. The Bible vision is that whether we're single or married, whether several children or none, abundant life isn't found in self-expression or self-fulfillment in riches, wealth, and and, uh, succeeding, but in self-denial and self-sacrifice. For many people, denial and sacrifice comes in the context of family. Yes, you're going to have to deny yourself, and that's okay. You're going to have to make some sacrifices, and yes, that's okay. God's first command to Adam and Eve, made in his image, wasn't to travel and do fun stuff. He gave them a job. First he gave Adam the naming of the animals. And then Eve created, and in some fashion I'm sure she helped him. Maybe she tended the garden, but they didn't do what we consider to be fun stuff. They didn't head off to the beach every weekend, ahead to the golf course, ahead to the fish, so forth and so on. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with these things. I like these, too. I like them too, except for golf because I don't play it well. His first command was be fruitful and multiply. Wow. Fruitfulness through marriage and family, though certainly not the only way to be fruitful, is a key part of God's creation mandate and his good design for human flourishing. And so Peter begins chapter 3, verse 1, with the phrase, likewise... Wives, be submissive. And we'll approach that and begin to look at that in detail next Sunday morning. Submitting in the family means that we will submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to all his commands, because his intent is to make us like him. To born us again into his kingdom. Remember, there is a family of God and we are invited to become and become and become part of that family. We're not born into the family. We are invited to become part of the family through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the directions and the admonitions that are contained here in 1 Peter 3. And although we didn't start to exegete them completely this morning. We are reminded that we live in a, in a world where when we read these verses, it seems to be almost alien to us, and indeed they are. We are aliens. Peter wrote about that earlier. We are strangers. We are pilgrims in a foreign land. And so our prayer this morning is that you would move in our hearts, help us to understand that that uh, we desire marriages that bring you glory and honor. We desire marriages that reflect the measureless love that exists in the Trinity and is poured out to us at Calvary. We desire, Father, to, if you have blessed us with the ability to have children, to have them and to raise them in the good confines 
of a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting local church, to make and lead them to become good citizens, to become responsible adults that don't think of themselves all the time, but rather give of themselves learning to love neighbor as ourselves. And teach us, Father, that we're to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning. And if you're here today, I know most of this message was to believers because most messages are preaching to teach church of the living God. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, our prayer is that you would recognize that you are a sinner and you're always a far worse sinner than you can ever imagine. The good news is that Jesus is greater than all of our sin, and he and he alone can save. And so we encourage you. If the Lord's spoken to your heart, if you just make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you confess your sins, call out to him in faith, and receive him as Savior. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, maybe by statement of faith. Maybe you know the Lord as Savior, you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that. As a child of God, how good is your marriage, those of you that are married? Some of you are planning to be married. Some of you will be married. What's your focus, young man, young woman? We'll bring this out in the next few weeks. What number, Brother Vance? Uh, number 317. 317.